Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 27, you might want to read along with me. It says, then Peter answered and said to him, see, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the son of man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Our chapter began with a confrontation by the religious leaders. They asked Jesus two trick questions. One about marriage, the other about divorce. Then Jesus speaks concerning riches in verses 16 through 26. And now the subject is going to shift to the issue of rewards in verses 27 through 30, the rich young ruler asked the question, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? Jesus told the young man to keep the commandments. He insisted that he had. Then Jesus invited him to go and sell all that you have and come and follow me. The young man turned away. Sorrowful, not willing to abandon his wealth. Jesus then gave an allegory, a parable, if you will, of the impossible, saying that it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And then the disciples asked, who then can be saved in verse 25? And Jesus assures them with God, all things are possible, verse 26. All of this prompts Peter to tune in to W-I-I-F-M. That's what's in it for me. Jesus assures them that there's going to be present perils and future rewards, that wealth doesn't guarantee hell, and poverty doesn't guarantee heaven. Great wealth, great poverty doesn't guarantee great faith. Years ago, when we were in the other building over there on Pierce Street, I was um, walking down the sidewalk and I picked up a dime and our next door neighbor at the other uh, village area was uh, owned the, the mortgage company there. And he watched me pick up the, 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 this dime and he said, you know, you'd be surprised how many pennies you can find in our parking lot. I pick them up, he said. I save them and when I get a hundred pennies, I buy a lotto ticket. And I said to him, how much have you won? And he said, well, I picked up enough mini pennies to buy four tickets, but I've never won anything. He gambled. He lost. Some people think 
that when the stakes seem so low and the rewards seem so high that it doesn't really matter. But when the stakes are your soul and eternity is in the balance, then we should take great care to think about our lives and the future and the investment that we're called on to make. We trust Jesus for salvation. We trust Jesus for life. Both the religious leaders and the disciples were shocked that wealth didn't guarantee blessing and favor. People who are poor risk despair. People who are rich risk trusting their riches. The real issue isn't the presence or the absence of wealth, but rather the stewardship that's been given to us. And what will we do with the stewardship that's been given to us? When you own something, you have the right to say how it will or will not be used. That becomes the point of the passage as God makes claim on your life. Does God own you? Does he have the right to use you as he wills? You might be a dime in God's parking lot. You might be a quarter in God's parking lot. You might be a silver dollar in God's parking lot. But he gets to choose how to negotiate and how to spend you. And so we look at the initial investment. Look at verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we've left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Peter's question may have been shared by his constant companions. Notice the use of the term The plural pronoun, we've left all. What shall we have? What the rich young ruler refused, Peter's arguing, we've accepted. The expression, left all, is interesting. Because it's in the aorist tense. You may not know what that means, but it's a verb tense which basically means... Something that happens once and for all. This isn't an issue that Peter is saying, we've visited this issue. We've already settled this issue. We've made a full and final commitment to to love you and to follow you into the future once and for all. We've left everything once and for all. We've made a determined decision once and for all. And we're not going back. We've done what the rich young ruler was either unwilling to do or unable to do. So what's going to be our reward? And in this case, the two things that make reward possible was a willingness to forsake all and then follow Jesus. Now remember, there's two components, the forsaking of all and the following of Jesus. And if the following of Jesus means following him into his future, in other words, following him in the plans that God has set aside for him. And as you follow him into the future of what God has set aside for him, then he begins to set aside things for you. Jesus 
by the way, doesn't rebuke Peter's question. Now, the question is a dangerous question. When it's offered with an improper motive, Jesus has already said that those who do good because they're looking for reward risk a forfeiture of that reward. He talked about that in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, and Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 14. There is a sense in which our motives matter. Spurgeon said, quote, There is no reward from God for those who seek it from men. What are you looking for? Where are you looking for it? In the Old Testament, there were rewards for people who walked with God. Obedience was often rewarded. Jesus will explain that obedience doesn't always result in immediate reward. If that were true, then those saints who exercise submission and obedience to the things of God would always be rich and the disobedient would always be poor, which is sadly the position of some misguided people who embrace what's called the health and wealth doctrine. They suggest to you that God owes it to you to be rich. Suffering becomes lost in their twisted theology. One Bible writer said, quote, the disciples' true reward and ours was God's presence and power through the Holy Spirit. The reward also includes the assurance of salvation and eternal life, an assurance that the rich young ruler lacked in verse 20. Later in eternity, God will reward the people for their faith and service, chapter 5, verse 12. What's in it for me if I follow Christ? Some of you automatically recoil at the question. There's, it just seems wrong to even answer the question or ask the question. But I'm going to suggest to you again that as you examine your motive and then you, you actually ask the question and you ask it appropriately and you remember the words of Jesus himself, count the cost. Count the the cost. Do the math. Ask and answer the question. What am I doing? Where am I going? What will it involve? Investment, risk, reward, return. And so look at verse 28, the long-term dividend. So Jesus said to them, assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The answer that Jesus gives points to a future time, which he calls the regeneration. In the original language, it's very interesting. It's the Greek word paline genetsia. It's translated new birth. Renewal, recreation. It occurs only one other time in the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, where it refers to 
the rebirth, when he says the regeneration, when the Son of Man, Jesus, sits on the throne of his glory, the investment given in the present, you who have followed me, results in a reward in the future. You will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus speaks of a future position, even of a future duty. And again, what is this regeneration that he's talking about? It's been called the renewal of all things. Like I said, it's found in first or in Titus chapter 3 verse 5 where it's translated rebirth and the word literally means Pauline. Genesis, again, Genesis. The same word was used by Josephus to describe the nation of Israel after the Babylonian captivity where he describes a new world for the Jewish people as they come back to the land which God had entrusted to them for a new beginning. As a matter of fact, the, the, uh, the Jewish writer uh, Philo speaks of the new birth of the world after the flood in his writings and then after the destruction of, uh, of the world by fire. So he uses that term to describe a world that was destroyed by the flood and then made new. A world that's destroyed by a fire and then it's made new. So in the present passage, I think Jesus is using it to represent the rebirth of the earth under his sovereign dominion at the time of his second coming. Now, some people suggest it's a reference to the age to come, what some people call the millennium, when the earth is made new. Others suggest that it's a future eternal state which takes place where there's a new heaven and a new earth. This is talked about in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. My own position is that it seems more likely to reference a period of time after the great tribulation and then the beginning of the millennium where a returned Jesus literally sits on a literal throne of David in the literal city of Jerusalem, where it becomes the undivided capital of the Messiah forever. One of the times when I was visiting in, in um, Israel, I said to the bus driver, I said, you know what, if, if I became the president of the United States, my first official act would be to say we support the fact that Jerusalem is the undivided capital of Israel forever. He, the bus driver turned around and goes, I'm voting for you. <laughs> in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, and in 66, verse 22, there's this amazing prophecy. It says, quote, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. And in chapter 66, we read the rebirth of Israel. For as the new heaven and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain forever. Jesus not just suggests, but demands that there be a kingdom where he is king. 
The Jews envisioned a golden age, like the time of David. It would include the Son of Man seated on David's long, vacant throne. And Jesus makes it clear that this event is yet future. And the disciples' explanation was that, or expectation, was that this is an event In their way of thinking, it was an event in the immediate future, not the far future. In their mind, in their mind, the talk of arrest and the talk of imprisonment and the talk of death and the talk of a resurrection was totally confusing. How can you have a kingdom without a king? And Jesus makes it clear that a time is coming when he will rule. And they will rule with him. And I want you to note the words, judging the 12 tribes. Now, judging is the Greek word, krino. It's a great, big concept. It was a word that was used to describe, direct, administer, supervise, govern, oversee and he suggests that they will direct Israel and he refers to them as the 12 tribes which I find very very interesting because of the so-called people who say that these tribes are lost and they are scattered and they are forgotten but in the heart of God, in the mind of God, he has kept a genealogical record, even though the genealogical record was destroyed in 70 AD when Titus and Vespasian came in and they burned the temple and they burned the records so that no Jew can, with a great deal of certainty, although some have suggested that they can date their lineage and refer all the way back to their tribal associations, but make no mistake about it. There are 12 tribes. They're going to be regathered. God knows who they are. In Luke's gospel, at the final Passover, in Luke chapter 22, verse 28 through 30, Jesus assures them that they're going to play a role in the future kingdom. In Luke twenty two twenty eight, 28, it says, But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, Paul intimates that believers in Christ everywhere will supervise the entire world and even angels. So how are we to think about all of this? Is this a literal kingdom? Are these literal tribes? Are these literal Jews? Is this a literal reward? There's nothing in the text that would indicate that this is allegorical or metaphorical. A real Jesus is going to really return. Jesus speaks of a condition. Continue with me in my trials. Do you think those are allegorical and metaphorical? Are the persecutions and the pain imaginary? 
Jesus knows that the persecution and the pain are not imaginary. And that the short-term investment is going to also mean a short-term loss. He's going to lose his life. And by the way, every single person that he's talking to at this point, as far as the disciples are concerned, will also lose their life. Judas, unfortunately, will hang himself, which presents a whole new theological conundrum when he's talking about 12 tribes and these 12 thrones and these 12 disciples. What exactly does that mean? And who will that all entail? And I don't have time to tell you all of the answers to those important questions. But what I'm going to suggest to you is the, the book of Revelation gives us a clue that there are 12 foundations and there are 12 thrones. And remember that Jesus has assigned a place, a place for each and every person. Jesus talks about bestowing a kingdom. He also talks about eating and drinking, nourishment and refreshment. He speaks of his table at the kingdom and he speaks of a job in that kingdom in Daniel chapter 7 verse 18 it talks about the son of man and the record of the vision of the future in Daniel chapter 7 verse 18 it says but the saints of the most high will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever yes in case you're wondering if it's forever he goes yes forever and ever you almost want to say, and ever? <laughs> and ever. The ancient of days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. The saints of the Most High. Daniel chapter 7. Luke chapter 22. Matthew here in verse 19. These are those who are the people who are ruled by Messiah. There is a future reward for God's people, for the Jew, for the Gentile, for those who have been made one in Christ. The long-term dividend is eternal life. You go to heaven. You don't just simply go to heaven. You have a job in heaven. You have a place in heaven, a position in heaven. You sit on a throne in heaven where Christ is king. In Revelation 3.21 it says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also have overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. Believers exercise authority over the people. In a restored place. Revelation 2.26. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end. To him I will give power over the nations. I don't think this is a superficial power or authority. There seems to be real rule Real responsibilities for those of you who have imagined that heaven will be boring. You don't understand heaven. Isaac Asimov envisioned a heaven that was spoken of, of, of ethereal clouds and invisible people and, and endless harps. And he goes, I don't want to go there. 
the way some Christians think about heaven and even describe heaven, you wouldn't want to go there either. But according to the Bible, there's singing in Isaiah 44, 23. Revelation chapter 14, verse 3. You might think, I don't like to sing. Well, that's you see me after the service. Why don't you like to sing? Why wouldn't you want to sing? Why wouldn't you want to with all of your heart and all of your soul communicate to the best of your ability the joy that you have for Jesus, the gratitude that you have towards God. There's going to be singing, it says in Isaiah 44 and Revelation 14. There's serving in Revelation chapter 7 verse uh, 15 in, in Revelation 22.3. There's learning, 1 Corinthians 13.9. Singing, serving, learning. My granddaughter Jaden this morning said, Papa, I can read. I said to her this morning, you know what's the best thing about reading? You can find out things that you never knew before. And my Madison said, I can't read. And I said, there are still things that you can find out as well. Augustine wrote, when God crowns our merits, it is nothing other than his own gifts that he crowns. The rewards that you receive are the rewards that he's always planned for you, that he's always prepared for you, that he's always entrusted to you. Look at the short-term loss and the long-term reward in verse 29. Look what it says. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit life eternal. What's the short-term loss? And everyone who has left, given up something. Everyone who has given up something. Everyone who has given up someone. Everyone who has walked away from what other people think are valuable. Now again, don't misunderstand the text. When Jesus says, and everyone who's left houses, mothers, brothers, fathers, wife, children, or lands, look what it says, for my name's sake. Not for being a jerk. This is not a passage of scripture that says the absent father doesn't have to pay his child support. This isn't, this isn't a passage that you can lay claim to and ignore your responsibilities as a husband, as a wife as a father, as a mother, as a person who's made contractual agreements or, or who, who have obligations. That's not what this text is saying. What Jesus is saying is that there are spiritual blessings for material sacrifices. What does he mean? That the Christ follower, the Jesus lover, can expect loss, material loss, relational loss, 
followers of Jesus since the beginning have experienced a loss of family, a loss of friends. If I lose my house, Jesus will give me a hundred more houses? Does this mean if I lose my mother, if she says, I'm not your mother anymore, I'm not your father anymore, if your children walk away, run away from you, does this mean you get a hundred more children? My answer might shock you. The answer is yes and no. In what sense? I don't think you literally get a hundred more fathers, a literal hundred more mothers, I think that the answer in part is literal spiritual blessings for material losses. I think that the answer in part includes what we are given in Christ. This morning when I was talking with Larry and Bess, he, Larry made the comment, hey, look, when you come to Israel, you can stay in my house. Well, what if my house burns to the ground? And I go, hey, you know what, Larry, I'm going to take you up on that. I'm going to come for a few days. By the way, God forbid that my house should burn to the ground. And God forbid that I should come up to you and say, can I stay with you forever? But how many of you would be willing to at least let my wife and I stay with you one day? Raise your hand. Look around you. A hundred hands go up. I experience loss. And there's gain. Jesus is in effect saying, I'm going to give you a hundred times better then whatever it is that you're sacrificing, whatever it is that you're giving up, this is the answer to the rich young ruler's question. Remember, how do I have eternal life? How do I inherit it? How do I secure it? We submit to Christ. We follow Jesus. We embrace his authority and his rule. Jesus takes priority over all. We give up anything and everything that hinders us from following him, from loving him, from serving him because eternal life isn't simply going to heaven. Remember, we've already had that conversation. Eternal life isn't just streets of gold and gates of pearl where angels guard your gated community. Heaven is more than a place you go when you die. It's a person that you meet. You see, it's one thing to go to Israel and see the sights. But it's another thing to know someone who's there, who knows the place, who knows the people. Heaven is more than just a place where you go when you die. It's a person that you meet. And some of you might be thinking... What about the here and now? You might be thinking, forget about heaven. I need a job today. I need rent money today. I need help today. I care about the present. I don't care about the sweet by and by. I care about the bitter here and now. And you may say that now. But one day you will care deeply. One day you will stand on the very threshold of eternity. 
Just like when you visit a house and there's a welcome mat, you are going to enter into a door. Mark's gospel gives us additional information in chapter 10, verse 29 and 30. It says, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now at this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands he says with persecutions with persecutions Jesus doesn't pull a bait and switch he doesn't invite you to make an investment all the while saying wait a minute you know there's no pain there's no loss there's no difficulty no there's loss and there is gain he says and in the age to come and in the age to come eternal life Mark speaks of the sake of Jesus and the sake of the gospel. If you follow Jesus, you will find yourself in the same place where Jesus found himself. If you follow Jesus and he happens to be going to Jerusalem, that's where you'll be going. If he happens to be going to Calvary, that's where you'll be going. If he happens to be going to an empty tomb, that's where you'll be going. If he happens to be rising from the dead, that's where you'll be going. If he happens to be going to heaven, then that's where you'll be going. If he happens to be coming back, then that's where you'll be going. If he decides that he's going to spend some time on a little excursion on Mars, guess where you're going to be? You're going to go where he goes. And you're going to do what he does. Peter may have lost his house in Capernaum. I visited it, so-called. If you went there, you wouldn't want to live in it. But how many saints, as Peter is going to make his way to Rome, will offer him shelter in his travels? Loss, profit, gain. Still wondering? Are you wondering if it's worth it? I want to invite you to go to heaven. And ask Paul if this world's suffering compares to the indescribable glories of heaven. Now I want you to go to hell. I know you thought you'd never hear me say that from the pulpit, did you? Now I want you to go to hell and ask Judas if 30 pieces of silver made all of his dreams come true. Ask Judas of hanging on to riches would mean that he would have to hang somewhere else. Oh, in hell you can also ask Herod if it was worth it, Pilate if it was worth it. And I hope and pray that we wouldn't have to ask the rich young ruler whether or not it was worth it. Ask them. Ask them in the darkness. Ask them between the screams. Ask them in the midst of pain. Ask them about profit, loss, 
and gain. And look what it says in verse 30. The risks and the disclosure. This is the fine print. But many who are first will be last. And the last will be first. In the Bible, this is known as a paradox. A paradox is something that seems to not make sense on the surface. It seems almost like a contradiction. What does it mean that the first will be last and the last will be first? When, whenever you make an investment, you read the fine print. And here, I think that the fine print to Peter's question is that Jesus issues a warning both to Peter and the disciples. And because he's issuing a warning to them, he's issuing a warning to you and to me. He's suggesting that if the first are going to hold on to human wisdom, human standards, human ways of assessing profit and loss, gain, if you, if you ask and you answer the question for the person who is the unbeliever and you say to the unbeliever, what do you think about loving Jesus and serving Jesus? They'll say, that's ridiculous. Why in the world would I want to invest my life in something that has no value? Remember what Paul said in Philippians? For me to live is, what does it say? For me to live is Christ and to die is... Only the Christian can say that. Imagine if you filled in the blank with anything else. Imagine for me to live is football. For me to live as investment, for me to live as money, for me to live as cars, for me to live as antiques, for me to live as this and that. And live. I was listening to a person on YouTube who said, I'm passionate about climate change. For me to live as climate change and to die is... Well, you die. Unless Jesus is your life, ultimately, whatever is your gain, it can't be Christ. Jesus will shock us and wake us up. The first will be last, and the last will be first. By the way, this is the moral of the parable of the workers in the very next section that we, that we look at from verse 20 on to verse, to verse 15. He, he's going to state the moral of the story before he even gives the story. Jesus rejects the notion that first come, first serve. Jesus isn't impressed by personal achievement. Jesus rejects unfair comparisons. Jesus reserves the right to reward according to his own standards, according to his own measures. Jesus traffics in grace. In Luke chapter 14, you remember the story of the Shabbat dinner. The guests push and shove. They're trying to make their way to get the best seat and where there's honor. 
So Jesus takes the occasion and he offers some investment advice on how to succeed. He says, look, whenever you go to the Shabbat dinner, instead of looking for the very best place, look for the last place. Look at the place that's furthest from the host. Look for the, the place that's closest to the door. That way when the host comes and he says, my good friend, my friend who I love and who I, I care about, when he, when he or she sees you sitting in the worst spot possible and says, bring another chair. I want you to sit next to me. I want to talk to you. I want to make room for you. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We find our lives by losing it, Matthew 10.39. We're unknown but known, Matthew 10.39. We're dying, yet you're, we're the only ones who possess life, 2 Corinthians 6.9. We're poor, yet we make many rich, 2 Corinthians 6.10. We have nothing, yet we possess everything, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. We are seen, but we remain unseen, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus reserves the right to turn everything on its head. We see things as humans see them. But our judgment is sometimes inaccurate, sometimes incomplete. Jesus knows everything. He sees everything. And many people that you placed first might wind up last on the list. God knows the hearts of his servants. We judge according to that which is visible, him by what is invisible. We might judge by age or seniority, by friendliness, by Christian recognition, by esteem, by influence, by ability, by skill, by position. And Jesus looks at surrender and sacrifice and transparency and humility and poverty of spirit and then the fruit of the spirit. There was an old missionary couple that had been working for years in Africa and they were returning to New York to retire. They had no pension. Their health was broken. They were defeated and discouraged and afraid. And they discovered that they were booked on the very same ship with none other than President Teddy Roosevelt. And he was returning home from a big game hunting expedition. And no one paid any attention to them. They watched the fanfare that accompanied the president's entourage and the passengers trying to catch a glimpse of the great man. And as the ship moved across the ocean, the old missionary said to his wife, there's something wrong. Why should we have been given our lives in faithful service to the lordship of Jesus Christ in Africa and all these many years and no one cares a thing about us? And here this man comes back from a hunting trip and everybody makes much ado. The husband said, it seems like nobody cares about us. 
The wife said, honey, you shouldn't feel that way. And the husband said, I can't help it. It just doesn't seem right. And when their ship docked in New York, there was a band waiting to greet the president. The mayor was there. The dignitaries were there. The newspapers were filled with the, the announcements that, uh, concerning the president's arrival. No one noticed the missionary couple. They slipped off the ship. They found a cheap apartment on the east side of New York. And that night, the man's spirit just broke. And he said to his wife, I, I, I don't think I can take this. I don't know if I can take this. It, it seems like the Lord is treating us rather unfairly. And his wife wisely replied, why don't you go into the, into the bedroom and just tell him everything about how you're feeling? And a short time later, he came out from the bedroom and his face was glowing and he was smiling. And she said, dear, what happened? And the man said, the Lord settled it with me. I told him how bitter I was that the president should receive such a tremendous homecoming and that when we returned home, no one met us. And when I finished, it seemed as though the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and just simply said, you're not home yet. Loss. Profit. Gain. Reward. Two things for reward. Forsake. Follow. Reward. Rule and reign with Jesus forever, verse 28. According to Jesus, your reward will be great. His words, not mine. The shocking surprise first or last in what sense there's a severe judgment there's a perfect justice for everyone every time let's pray heavenly father lord for the person who's wondering whether or not Forsaking all and following Jesus is worth it. Lord, I pray that you would do what only you can do. And that is to convince them. It doesn't seem like much of a conundrum to me. Why would anyone want darkness over light? Why would anyone want sin over forgiveness? Why would anyone want judgment over reward? Why would anyone opt to remain broken when they could be made whole? And so, Heavenly Father, again, I pray for that person who's made his way or her way here. The emptiness is overwhelming. 
The darkness and the emptiness is gnawing and hurting. Lord, I pray that they would turn from their sin, turn to the Savior. Lord, I pray that they would pray that very simple prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to forsake everything and follow you. I want Jesus in my life. I want grace in my life. I want mercy in my life. I want life in my life. Lord, I pray that you would hear that prayer and that you would honor it. That you would come into their heart. That you would forgive them their sin and give them life eternal. And then you would prepare them for the future. And again, Father, we pray, we pray, we pray that we could fix our eyes firmly on Jesus, knowing that our reward will be great. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.